Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm still Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us today the district attorney for the Northwestern District. That is the district that encompasses Franklin and Hampshire County, David Sullivan. Dave Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us. I would like to begin by asking you about the lawsuit that was filed against your office by a reporter seeking public records. It got a lot of publicity, a lot of media coverage when first filed, but it's really been all quiet on the Western Front since then. And I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners what the lawsuit is about and what the district attorney's office position is. Sure. Uh, The reporter uh, was looking for uh, records of police officers and in particular, uh, the Corey or, or you know, the criminal records uh, of any police officers, whether it was minor, major, uh, going back even before they were police officers. So um, we disagreed with that. We thought that it should be um, done through the judicial process. In other words, if somebody wants that, that reporter, then go before a judge and uh, they'll allow those Corey records if they feel it's uh, material. But uh, we just disagreed with that. I, whether it's a police officer or a layperson, um, you know, it could be an embarrassing record going back to when they were a teenager, or uh, you know, something that's not even relevant to their police work. So um, we just opposed that. That was a minor uh, exception. We we always give as much as we can, you know, with certain exceptions to uh, re- reporters or anybody that asks for these public records. So uh, where the lawsuit is now is uh, filed in Suffolk Court. Uh, We'll be filing an answer probably within the next couple of weeks, uh, but it's, it'll be on a slow uh, trajectory for now. I think it's on a two-year track, so but we'll, we'll try to resolve it uh, beforehand, and we'll, it, we, we try to negotiate with the reporter is to give them everything we can, but um, you know, with that exception. The lawsuit is brought by the uh, shoestring, a reporter for the shoestring, uh, and it says that these are public records. You, as the district attorney for the Northwestern District, take the position that they aren't public records. The case went through the supervisor of public records, who, as I understand it, agreed with uh, the DA's position, your position, Uh, and then the case goes to Suffolk Superior Court. The issue is whether or not these records, these uh, records that arguably... Uh, covered by and protected from public disclosure by uh, the criminal offender records information law in Massachusetts. That's the crux of this. Is they are they are those records private because they're covered by Corey, or are they public because they involve public officials? That is specifically police officers. Uh, no, it, we just oppose it because I think that a police officer has the same protection as any other lay officer. I will say that, you know, during the criminal discovery process, we produce these records for defense attorneys uh, who have them and they can use them uh, as much as the judge feels they're relevant. Uh, But that's a whole different set of circumstances because we have that uh, obligation under Brady versus Maryland. Uh, But, you know, we try to release as much as we can, but we just kind of we set the line that, hey, you know, it, it, it may not be relevant to anything. Um, it, it's an old record, or it wouldn't be a new record because we'd be, it'd be in the newspaper probably. But, um, you know, uh, we'll let the courts decide uh, what the breadth of that uh, reporter's uh, 
record is, whether it's public or whether it's an exception to the rule. Because Corey has its own set of rules, as you well know, you know, very strict uh, uh, as far as uh, those records can be released. So we just think that that, that particular statute overrides the public record exception. Well, let me ask this, because it was one aspect of this lawsuit and the reporting that I didn't understand. What records does the district attorney office have and why do you have them we don't have those records you don't that's, that's, the, that's the crux of it is you know it would be within the police department and that's uh, of course one of the things that we said is well ask the police department you know um because we we, we told the reporter yes there is uh, something in that in the record um uh relating to that officer that is query related uh but we don't release you know what that uh, we don't release the police officer's name, but we say, hey, here's this incident. This is what had happened. But, um, yeah, no, we don't have the record. Is that a defense? You're, you, yeah. the reporter, are asking the wrong entity for the records? Yeah, that's one of the defenses. But, you know, of course, we're, uh, we're an agency of the government. You could say that, hey, we can get the records. But, you know, it's whether these, uh, I think the records are with the uh the local police department and they've got those those records so uh that, that may be another but i, I think just the uh, the fact that, that they've asked for them um there's disciplinary records as well so um you know whether those are uh there is there is an exception in the in the new law public records law about uh disciplinary records so uh we're going to look at those and, and whether if we can comply with those that's fine yeah, but we, we don't want to be um holding information that can be released but in, in this limited limited uh, circumstance I, I think that we have a, a good position to stand on the position that i read in the newspaper district attorney is that the da's office says look the law is whatever the law is we'd like a we you meaning you would like a decision from a court that in fact answers the question are these public records that you have to disclose and that exactly. seemed that seemed to me to be kind of a neutral position. Tell us what the law is. Uh, are you vigorously opposing this, or are you simply asking the court to tell, make a declaration on whether or not you have, as district attorney, an obligation to turn these records over to a reporter? And and while you're answering Bill's question, or should it be the legislature that is more clear about what should and shouldn't be available to the public? Well, I, I think the public records law could be clearer as to whether these specific records uh, are available. So, yeah, we want the uh, the court, if it's got to go up to the Supreme Court, for them to make that decision whether the public records law overrides the Cory law, then we'll let the Supreme Court decide, or some maybe lesser court, maybe the appellate court or even a superior court justice, as long as it's a clear decision. One last question on this, District Attorney, if I might. It seems to me that it matters that the records are being requested of police officers because police officers are public officials. And as public officials, the public has more right to information about them than it would to a person who doesn't hold a public office. And I'm wondering if you could give us your reflections on that aspect of the case. Well, I think it's very important that we hold our public officials accountable and uh you know, I, I think what we're looking at is records that are very old, that uh, are in the, the very distant past, and, you know, should a person ex 
experience that embarrassment uh, that this has raised later in their career. Um, and again, that's that's why the Corey laws are there. And uh, we just want to know, hey, under equal protection, is the police officer protected the same as any other layperson? District Attorney Dave Sullivan, we were talking, you and Buzz and I, were talking before we went on the air about a topic that Buzz raised with you based on the recent Supreme Court decision regarding college admissions and more specifically the Supreme Court gutting affirmative action for college admissions. And Buzz, there was an aspect of that decision that you thought had implications locally uh, and for agencies and governmental entities that are trying to hire. And perhaps you could share with our listeners and repose that question to the district attorney, Buzz. Yes, uh, District Attorney Sullivan. So your office, I guess it's a two-part question. Number one, how important is it for your staff to be one that reflects diversity and inclusion and equity? And number two, do you, in the hiring process, consider race, ethnicity, sexual orientation in trying to pr- promote a diversified staff? Well, I, I think it's very important for any government agency, including the district attorney's office, to reflect um, our population and uh, the diversity of opinions and ideas. And, and you don't want a monolithic office. You don't want an all-white office, uh, although, you know, our two counties are very predominantly white. Uh, and it, it, let me give you an example. Uh, we have a number of Latino victims, um, so we need Latino victim witness advocates. Um, we have uh, a number of people that come into our community um, that may be um, of a different ethnic origin. So we want to make sure that, that we have that, uh, that staff that has an understanding of that, uh, that culture and can respond appropriately. So I, I think that um, your, our recruitment um, tries to be as diverse as possible. In other words, when we look for attorneys, we advertise uh, in the black uh, bar Association, Latino Bar Association. Uh, we, we, we cast a wide net. We, we want uh, every opportunity to hire people, um, you know, from those different cultures. So um, it, it's, it's difficult, I'll say that, because, um, you know, number one is that there's a limited pool that comes out of Western New England College, and, you, and most want to practice civil law. They don't want to practice criminal law, whether it's defense or prosecution. So, um, you know, it, it's it's tandem on, on every uh, government agency to really uh, cast that wide net. And certainly we don't discriminate based upon sexual orientation or race or ethnicity at all. District Attorney, I'd be interested to know, and if you can't answer this, I'm sure you'll just tell us, whether or not among district attorneys, and I know you're a member of the Massachusetts District Attorneys Association, whether there has been discussion about how this Supreme Court decision, which is specifically about college admissions, but nonetheless is clear that race uh, preferences for persons of color in college admissions is not constitutional or is not legal, uh, whether or not uh, that has engendered discussion about how and the obstacles that might now be present for hiring uh, persons of color by district attorneys. Well, we, we haven't met as a body yet, uh, but it, certainly I had a few conversations with some colleagues, and uh, that is a big concern, is that um, 
that factor that's very important uh, may end up, who knows what the next Supreme Court uh, ruling on uh, employment will hold. I mean, as we all know, it's a very conservative court that's really gone very far to the right. So, um, you know, I'm concerned. But, you know, I think it's, it's each DA's office that has to make it, its own outreach. And I think that uh, when you do make that outreach, um, and it's a good one, then you're going to get more people of color to apply and hopefully get hired. Well, it's one thing to say we're going to do outreach, and I don't think the Supreme Court actually is going to have a problem with saying, sure, look for applicants. I don't think that's going to be a problem, but the problem is going to arise when you're making a hiring decision. And that, it seems to me, is something the Supreme Court has specifically said with regard to college admissions. You cannot use race to put a thumb on the scale in favor of, or obviously in uh, as a negative uh, for a person applying for a job, uh, and I think that's a matter of real concern for governmental agencies who say we want diversity in our workforce. It actually helps our jobs, helps us do our job, and is very important. And I want to have a final thought on that before we go on to another topic. Yeah. I think that you try to recruit that diverse uh, body of, of employees, and certainly uh, you, you pick the best qualified uh, person. You know, on our hiring committees, we always have somebody from our diversity, equity, inclusion uh, committee. We have a committee in the office that's about diversity, equity, inclusion. There's always somebody from that committee on the hiring committee, and that gives the, a different perspective than maybe somebody uh, who's white and maybe doesn't have that um, that mindset. So um, you know, I think it's very important to, to make sure we get that diversity uh, from the very beginning. And, and certainly, uh, I, I don't think that when you look at race, um, it's very important to understand that people actually have different backgrounds. And those backgrounds are very, very important when a prosecutor is making decisions to reflect uh, a real holistic view of an individual. We are speaking with the district attorney for the Northwestern District, Dave Sullivan. After the break, we are going to talk about bail and dangerousness hearings and who gets held pretrial and how many and why. Also want to raise the question about Donald Trump and specifically the question that has been bandied about quite a bit recently, which is the length of time it takes to get someone to trial on a serious case. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside. Get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. 
Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our discussion with District Attorney David Sullivan. He is the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which is comprised of the counties of Hampshire and Franklin. And I wanted to raise with you, District Attorney, a question that came up recently and has come up frequently because of the criticisms that the mayor of Springfield, Dominic Sarno, has made with regard to the judiciary saying someone was arrested you let them out on bail, and then they committed another crime, and that's your fault, Judge. You let them out. And it seems to me that uh, the mayor has it all wrong, or at least he has it 99% wrong, because bail is not supposed to be used to hold someone because someone thinks they're dangerous. Bail is to be used to ensure the presence of a defendant at trial, uh, a questionable proposition altogether. But if there is a concern, a significant concern, that the defendant is dangerous, there is a process for holding someone not on bail but on a dangerousness hearing. And I think that's something that because of years of experience with bail being used to hold people allegedly because they're dangerous, that there's quite a bit of confusion in the public's mind about that. And I'm hoping you can help clarify that for us. Sure. Well, I, I think, number one, as we all know, a tenet of American justice is everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that is very counter to that, uh, because, you know, as you mentioned, bail is to ensure someone's appearance, that they show back up. So somebody who has 15 defaults and, uh, you know, has really shown a disrespect for the process by just not showing up, then, yeah, that, that, that merits some type of bail. Um, the judge may set it at $500 or $1,000 or, uh, or maybe just put conditions on that individual uh, so that they appear, maybe put a bracelet on it. But when you move for dangerousness, um, it, it's really about uh, that person being a danger uh, to another person or to the public. And um, it's a special protocol. It's uh, under, the, uh, under Chapter 276-58A, and uh Somebody's going to be held for at least 120, up to 120 days, sometimes longer, because things get continued. Um, so that's a very, very um, dangerous, I should say it's a tool 
for a prosecutor, but it should be used very infrequently. And, um, and we, we really look at those type of situations and we try to work out conditions of, of release as opposed to uh, dangerousness with no, no conditions that somebody's held for that 120 days. But sometimes we feel that it, it's merited because somebody's threatened somebody's life. Uh, they've attempted to murder somebody. You know, so they're, um, it, it's, it's a tough situation. Well, this Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court uh, in the uh, Brangen case said, held, was really clear that bail is not to be used unless it's really necessary and that as a means of assuring a defendant's appearance for, for, their court, for court and for trial, it's highly disfavored. And I'm wondering whether that decision over past years has made a difference in the positions of the district attorney's office with regard to going in front of a judge after someone is arrested or arraigned and uh, and or indicted and then arraigned in superior court in terms of what bail you ask for? I, I think absolutely. I think uh, policy's changed. Uh, maybe there's an outlier, but I know that from our office's perspective and the ones that I've seen, um, there's a lot less people being held on, on bail uh, than there was before. And I think that decision, the brand decision, was a good decision because it clarified, hey, this is what this is all about. You can't be setting $100,000 for somebody that couldn't even post $100. As you know, uh, sometimes $500 is enough to hold somebody for six months. So, you know, uh, we always look at uh, what a person can post. We don't want, you know, say it was $150, the person only had 100 uh, we'd set it uh, with, usually by agreement with a defense attorney for that amount. So we try to reach an agreement with defense attorneys as to an appropriate bail, if, if it is. But the presumption in Massachusetts is the personal recognizance that they're they're allowed to, to leave that court and, uh, you know, that they agree to come back. And, and that's the standard. I'd say that's probably a good 95% of all the cases that we have coming through our offices is uh, personal recognizance. Any sense, and this is unfair to ask, I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this, do you have any sense of how many people are in the Hampshire County Jail awaiting trial because they can't set bail? I think there's very few. Usually most of them are uh, folks that commit a crime while um, uh, while out on bail. In other words, their, their bail's revoked and they're brought back. Um, that's usually... You know, I don't know. If I had to say, guess, I'd say maybe 15 or 20 maybe, and it's usually because of the revocation of bail. There, we really don't have that many um, dangerousness hearings, and maybe there'd be three or four that would be held at any given time on dangerousness. So there would be some in the jail who are held on dangerousness, some who are held because they violated the conditions of their release, um, and other than that, you don't think there are actually very many who are held on cash cash bail because they can't meet it in Hampshire and Franklin counties? Yeah, you, you know, you'd have like a murder, you know, maybe somebody who's held on murder charges. Um, you know, I know there's a sure. couple that are at Bridgewater State right now. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the number of, the, I, the number of pretrial uh, detentions has really been reduced over the last five years. And uh, it seems to be working well. I mean, I... You know, but one of the things is that when, um, you know, when people are released and then they, you know, commit another crime, then that's a reason for us to move for revocation Dis of that bail. District Attorney, 
Before we go, I'd like to turn to one other topic, and that is the issue that has arisen around Donald Trump's indictments and people asking me, and I'm sure asking you, why does it take months, maybe years, for a case to come to trial? And I'd appreciate your explaining that from the DA's point of view. Sure. Um, from both the DA's and the uh, defense point of view, because I was in defense for 16 years, the defense attorneys really need to have the full picture of a case. They need to do their uh, due diligence and, and do discovery. The, the prosecutor needs to produce it so that the defense attorney can properly represent their client. And um, this is a complicated case. There's just thousands of documents and uh, just different parts of the case that are going to require uh, really good investigators. Uh, hopefully he's going to get some attorneys uh, that are going to represent him. I don't know if he's got permanent counsel at this point. Um, but uh, w without counsel uh, to really do this due diligence and prepare a defense, um, you know, Donald Trump won't really get a fair trial. So. Um, so it, it takes time and, and motions that get filed. Um, and these are motions that are very legitimate. And, and people should know that it's a defense attorney's duty to, to file these motions. Uh, we have the burden of proof. Uh, the, Donald Trump doesn't have to prove a single thing. He could sit there yeah, through the whole trial, not say a single thing, and be found uh, not guilty. Um, but that's, he has no obligation to produce any documents or any evidence against himself. So, you know. Um, I want Donald Trump to get a fair trial like I want anybody else to get a fair trial. And we should note, emotion, a word that we use a fair amount and kind of assume, we lawyers assume everyone knows what we're talking about. Emotion is a request to a court to do something, often written. Yes. Pre-trial motions, that is requests to do something like dismiss the case, exclude evidence, uh, make decisions on what evidence will or will not be admissible, decide on how you're going to deal with, and this is really a matter of significance in Trump's case, how you're going to deal with classified information. It's classified so it can't become public, but it's got to be public because it's part of a public trial. Or and to continue so that his co-defendant, Walt Nauta, can get counsel, which is also one of the delays that's happening here. So all of that, I think, is uh, really goes into in explaining why Trump is not going to trial immediately and while the prosecution's request for a trial in January as the primary start, I think is really unlikely to be succeed in front of the trial court. But I suppose it could. A final thought from you, District Attorney, on this? Well, it's, it's going to be a long process. Uh, the first thing I think of when I see all that uh, material out there is, was there some illegal search? Was there some basis uh, for those search warrants that wasn't warranted? Uh, so I'd want to attack uh, any evidence that they want to produce. Well, we're going to leave it there. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, District Attorney Dave Sullivan. We really appreciate your time and insights. Thank you so much for being with us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Bill and uh, Buzz. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. More than 50 people became new citizens yesterday during a ceremony at Northampton Courthouse. The court clerk led the oath of allegiance, and people from all over the world were given their new citizen naturalization certificates. 52 people from Jamaica, Nigeria, Brazil, Mexico, and Cambodia can now officially say they're U.S. citizens. Lori Millman from Center for New Americans. 
it is the fulfillment of a longtime dream goal, which they worked very hard for. This ceremony was one of two held in Massachusetts. Thorns Marketplace in Northampton is planning on holding a training session on what to do in an active shooter situation. Marketing manager and co-owner Jody Dole tells the Gazette they feel they run a greater risk than the average business, and she felt it was their responsibility to take preventative measures. Thorns staff and business owners will be instructed by Protective Advanced Safety Services based in Agawam. The training will take place on a Sunday this fall and will consist of classroom training and an active shooter drill. The harassment order issued against actor Ezra Miller was lifted Friday at Greenfield District Court, a day early from when it was set to expire. Last year, a mother of a minor accused Miller of acting inappropriately around her child. Miller's attorney said in a statement that Miller was unable to defend themselves at the hearing a year ago due to mental health struggles and had they testified, the original order may have never been issued. No criminal charges against Miller were ever filed. Your 22 News forecast, hot and humid today with a high of 92. Tonight, clear skies. We'll see a low in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and humid once again. There's a chance of a pop-up shower in the afternoon, otherwise dry, with high temps in the low 90s. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema anuló el jueves la acción afirmativa en las admisiones universitarias, declarando que la raza no puede ser un factor y obligando a las instituciones de educación superior a buscar nuevas formas de lograr cuerpos estudiantiles diversos. La mayoría conservadora de la Corte anuló efectivamente casos que se remontan a 45 años atrás al invalidar los planes de admisión en Harvard y la Universidad de Carolina del Norte, las universidades privadas y públicas más antiguas del país respectivamente. La decisión, al igual que el trascendental fallo sobre el aborto del año pasado que anuló Roe vs. Wade, marcó la realización de un objetivo legal conservador buscado durante mucho tiempo. El presidente del Tribunal Supremo, John Roberts, dijo que durante demasiado tiempo las universidades han concluido erróneamente que la piedra de toque de la identidad de un individuo no son los desafíos superados, las habilidades desarrolladas o las lecciones aprendidas, sino el color de su piel. Nuestra historia constitucional no tolera esa elección. Desde la Casa Blanca, el presidente Joe Biden dijo que estaba muy, muy enérgicamente en desacuerdo con el fallo de la Corte e instó a las universidades a buscar otras rutas hacia la diversidad en lugar de dejar que el fallo sea la última palabra. El juez Clarence Thomas, el segundo juez negro de la nación que durante mucho tiempo había pedido el fin de la acción afirmativa, escribió que la decisión ve las políticas de admisión de las universidades por lo que son, preferencias sin rumbo, basadas en la raza, diseñadas para garantizar una mezcla racial particular en sus clases de ingreso. Por su parte, la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, la primera latina de la Corte, escribió en desacuerdo que la decisión hace retroceder décadas de precedentes y avances trascendentales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show Dr. Jane Fleischman, our show's resident sex educator, sexologist. 
Okay, here we go. Otherwise, perhaps we should just rename it The Awkward Moment with Dr. Jane Fleischman. Bill, <laughs> this is my life, you know? Like it's a it's full of awkward moments and I love being with you when you Because feel awkward. we because you provide right. so many awkward right. moments. And Buzz I, doesn't I, seem to get as awkward as you. So no, what's that I, about? I yeah. desire talking with you. In fact, we're going to talk about desire, there you Buzz. Go. Desire and arousal. Mm. Well, I, I, I desire. I'll I'll leave the other one. Well, out they're of the different. No, they're really different. And Bill, I'm so glad that I get to look at you. <laughs> Okay, good thing this isn't television. Well, yes, please, please, well, please press on. Well, listen, sexual desire and sexual arousal, people get them confused. They're not the same thing. Any ideas what they might mean, Bill or a buzz? Let's start with Bill. I have no ideas. I have the right to remain silent. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I say can and will be used against me in this discussion. <laughs> Um, if I, and if I desire an attorney, I'll probably hire Buzz. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a psychologist or a sexologist, but it seems to me the common u- usage of the words, desire is I want, mm. and uh, arousal is more lusty. Mm, yeah, desi- desire is I want, and arousal is I want now. <laughs> you know, Bill, that's not bad, actually. That's pretty good. Partial credit. Okay, very good. <laughs> Well, you remember in the beginning of a relationship, you know, I, I work with a lot of people. Oh, I thought you were saying in the beginning who, and there was Adam and Eve. Beginning. No, we won't even go there. And Lilith, don't forget Lilith. And Sodom and Gomorrah. But we won't go there, will we, Bill? No, we won't. But remember in the beginning of a relationship, you know, I work with a lot of older couples, older adults, who often say to me, how come it's not like it used to be? What happened? Why aren't we as hot as we used to be? Why aren't we as hot for each other? What's going on? And, you know, we have a word for that. It's limerence. The limerence stage is that sort of early anything that they do. They walk in the room. They look like Bill looks this morning as handsome as possible, and it doesn't even matter what he looks like, and they get hot, right? So it's that... Oh, no, no, don't don't, don't go on. (laughs) Just stay with that. (laughs) (laughs) He's so... He's just... He's looking for something, isn't he? So... After a while, things change. So let's What did you call that stage? Limerence, L-I-M-E-R-A-N-C-E. Look it up, Bill. It's a great, another good word. I'm going to look it up right now. And, and so I want I to sort of begin by figuring out what these definitions are. So for sexual desire, think of it as an emotion, okay? okay. Sexual arousal is more like a physiologic response. Okay, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. When Bill said lusty, that's kind of a, hmm. Oh, sorry. When Buzz said lusty, that's, you know, they are as competitive as they always are. That's great. Now, um, I want lusty to stay with me. Thank you. Thank you. So sexual desire is an emotion, and it's a state characterized by maybe an interest in sexual activities or by a drive to seek out or engage in some kind of sexual play, sexual behavior. So it's an aspect of sexuality, and it varies significantly from one person to another. Maybe Bill is a little different than Buzz. Maybe Yes, I'd like to second that one. I, I have things to say about that. I also have looked up limerence for you, I huh? want to, to of know. Of course you did. I, of course I did. And I he is the best student in the class, don't you think, Buzz? <laughs> don't say that. He's <laughs> going to get competitive. He wants to be the teacher's pet here. Look. It does say on my def- dictionary definition from the Oxford Oxford Dictionary, 
It is the state of being infatuated or obsessed mm-hmm. with another person typically experienced involuntarily, right. characterized by a strong desire for reciprocation of one's feelings, but not primarily for a sexual relationship. Ah, How about that? Although, although if you, when, you, when you're with your show's resident sexologist, Everything uh, it, it, is, is about it is primarily sex. about a sexual right. relationship. I mean, okay. let's face it, Bill. So, but that's a really good definition because it sort of begins that idea of... I can't do anything about it. I'm just dying to pull my, okay, get my jeans off and hop on the table and okay. do whatever Thank happens. You. Yes, okay, got very it. good. <laughs> so, but it fluctuates depending on the circumstance. And there are two different types of sexual desire. And a lot of people are really confused about this. Like they think that it just sort of happens spontaneously. So we have two different types. And the people at the Kinsey Institute actually did some great research on this many years ago, like 50 years ago. And, you know, Emily Nagoski, who lives right near here, who wrote that great book, um, Come As You Are. It's a really interesting book about desire and arousal. She kind of helped popularize this idea that spontaneous desire, it's just there. You know, the moment they step foot in the room, you want to just jump their bones. I just said bones. Now, responsive desire is a little bit different. Responsive desire is sort of, you need more stimuli. You need more what we call the stuff to get you excited, to get you into that place of feeling desire. Remember, it's an emotional state. So let me turn now to arousal, and then we're going to come back to this idea of desire. So I said the sexual arousal is this physiologic response. It's the engorgement of the genitals, right? It could be the nipples, other erogenous zones. Um, After any kind of sexual stimuli, either cognitively, and there are people who can literally, Bill, you're going to love this, think themselves off without any touch whatsoever. Pretty amazing. It could be an erotic thought, a fantasy, any kind of visual trigger, and it could send a signal to the genitals and the blood vessels to fill with blood. Or it could be, like we're used to, direct stimulation, which triggers blood flow to the genitals. Either way, the brain reads these stimuli as sexual arousal, and that could lead to further sexual play or sexual involvement. Everybody with me still? Yeah, it's all, in your, it's all in your head. That's what you're telling well, us. Well, no, it's not mm. all in there. Your head is a huge sexual organ. But it's a way of transferring this idea into the rest of the body. So for either route to be effective, the mind, the head, must be willing to accept and experience those sensations in order for a consensual sexual experience to continue. But, Dr. Jane Fleischman. Yes, Buzz. Are they, is this yes, a continuum? <laughs> for the people in the back of the class, yes. Is this a continuum <laughs> that is desire? <laughs> Is it a continuum so the desire is on the way to what can become arousal? Correct, yeah. And a lot of people say, you know, I'm not wet, so I guess I don't have any desire. But in fact, as you get older, particularly for women who have gone through menopause and they don't have as much estrogen in their body anymore, their vaginal lining is not lubricating like it used to because the skin's glands are not getting the estrogen that will cause the personal lubrication to build up. So people say, well, maybe I don't have any desire because I'm not noticing anything in my body that usually changes. That's kind of interesting, right? So, And that's just a life cycle kind of thing. So but everyone wants to be touched. Everyone wants to be wanted. 
Well, not everybody wants to be touched in the same way. And people have to want to be touched by that person. And they have to want that person, right? I mean, there's so many layers of this. So you're right. I mean, there's a lot of um, kind of categories that we have to figure out. But in any case, for any of this to happen, we've got to just sort of notice what's going on in our mind and the rest of our body. So um, can we try a little experiment with you, Bill and Buzz? Or how about with you, Buzz? So this is Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman. And I think the answer to that question is, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think responsive desire would look like? Not for yourself, but for anybody, right? You know, instead of just relying on people to spontaneously be in the mood, what are some ideas that you have that could help enhance or maybe bring that person forward to a feeling of sexual desire. It doesn't, you don't have to speak from personal experience here. So anything you can think of. Uh, well, I mean, I, I could answer for, uh, for any person. If it, look, if my children were still young and I was talking about this with them, I would try to talk about why uh, waiting for the right person, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, that kind of arousal, mm -hmm. that kind of... Uh, uh, invitation is uh, you you feel flattered that they would even want you you be somebody of that status you know falling yes. in love first love mm -hmm. I would answer it differently than just mm -hmm. generally somebody can stimulate you and been, make you feel they are willing and they want you mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I, so I answered in two different ways one oh, is good. what yeah. are some of the environmental stuff that could happen that could get people in the mood right people often say let's go for a romantic dinner and come back and make love and you know as you get older after the romantic dinner is over you, you want to go, go to, to sleep, sleep right <laughs> so maybe that doesn't work for you as you get older but what are some of the other kind of environmental cues that people might give each other well think of your senses okay bill i'm going to give you a little hint here oh good for those of us who didn't take notes the first time around listen lighting Lighting. Thank you, Dan. Dan, You're feel welcome. free to keep no, going. I, I stay quiet here He's in the smiling. back. <laughs> Dan's smiling. But lighting, right? These overhead lights in your studio would be the worst for me. They bring out all the worst parts of my, you know, aging body. But maybe softer lighting, maybe some kind of aroma that smells great. That's why people put flowers in their room, right? What about music? Maybe, you know, having your Bluetooth speaker set up right there with the best music you know that's kind of the exciting music for the two of you or however many uh, of you there are. Isn't there something about eye contact that's totally, far more important totally. than any of those things? When you look into my eyes and you're about a quarter of an inch away, Buzz, I mean, I'm looking into your soul. I'm seeing the beauty of who you are inside. It's an amazing feeling. That could be a total excitement turn on. And and desire maker, right? It's a response to that that could bring the desire forward. It's a connection. I'm, I, I don't mean to be pedestrian about all this. He but is pedestrian, though. Go ahead. How about liquor and marijuana? Hey, now you're talking. Okay. So yes, yes. Now you're yes. talking. A gold star. So okay. Bill's so right. So, you know. Oh, say that again. Bill, you're so right. Bill, you you're are so, so right. right. <laughs> Not for I don't me know if that exactly. was desire He's or not arousal. Not me exactly, but he's right. So, so Bill's right. You know, people use cannabis now a lot to kind of 
get their endorphins going, right? To sort of stimulate whatever is going on in their brain and to give them a little bit. And maybe a glass of wine or a drink might relax some of the anxiety that people have about is this going to happen or not? What you know? How is it going to work? Will will my body work? You know, all those kinds of things. D- does that equate? Does the relaxation equate with? Uh, Increase in desire or arousal? Well, it could. Not necessarily arousal, but it could increase desire if the anxiety was so overwhelming that it was standing in the way of you feeling anything inside your head. And so, yeah, absolutely, Bill. And, you know, a lot of times people say, I'm not really in the mood. You ever hear that? I'm not really. No, uh, uh, never. Never. There's never that heard. right There's that right to remain silent right. thing again. Never okay. <laughs> so you can... Hear it from me first, from Dr. Jane Fleischman, that not in the mood might mean that you haven't produced enough of the external environmental stimuli. So you haven't taken care of the other senses, including touch, smell, what you see, what I, I, you I have hear. a question, Dr. Yeah. Jane Fleischman. And, and well, both Bill and I are involved in relationships that are, I don't know, pushing on a half a, a century. Yeah. But Dan... Dan Torres is a single man. Uh oh, here we go. Is this conversation different for Dan than it is for Bill and Buzz? No, it's the Why don't I ask Dan that? Why are you asking me? You're why, why, don't we, why don't we ask that during the break and see if we can actually do it on air? We are not going to do it on air, Bill. You told me we're not allowed. <laughs> the table is full. We'll be back more with Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman. If you feel my fire, you'll want to go too high, so don't you feel my Don't you buy... This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. 
Corsella Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsella Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with our show's resident sexologist. This segment is titled Sex Matters, and we are here with Dr. Jane Fleischman. We were talking before the break about arousal and desire, and I had raised with you, Dr. Fleischman, the question of alcohol and uh, cannabis, and I do have in front of me uh, Shakespeare's famous quote uh, from, uh, it's from Macbeth, as to the effect of alcohol on (laughs) sex, it provokes and unprovokes, it provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. Mm. Your thoughts with regard to the great bard? Mm, I mean, they don't call it intoxication for no reason, Bill. I think that when people ask me questions like about doing drugs while they're um, having sex or, you know, you know, drugs like ecstasy, you know, real mind enhancement drugs or alcohol. What I often say to them is it may improve that ability to get there, but it may not improve your ability to actually enjoy what you're doing, and it may impede your ability to remember and have a wonderful sort of memory of what happened in that moment. And I think that's part of sex is to have a memory of that joy of the bodies meeting each other and finding a new place to feel good with each other. And so I think I have a, I'm of two minds about it, I guess. I, I would suggest that the bard is right in terms of performance, that it can actually impede performance, but I also, also think the bard is right that it can loosen us to a place where we can feel more vulnerable. And, I mean, and what is intimacy without vulnerability, right? You want to have a sense that you're risking something and the other person is risking something too. And that often brings your intimate connection closer. Well, it's just enjoying or not enjoying the same thing together with yeah. another person. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I mean, you know, we talked about masturbation. I know we're not going to talk about masturbation every month, Bill, but we talked about masturbation last month. And it was a lot of fun to think about solo sex and how, how it's so useful for so many different parts of our lives. Bill, okay. thou dost protest too much. <laughs> thou dost protest. But, but the truth is that it's also really fun to have sex with other people if you want to, and that's the key, this idea about consensual and mutually agreed upon sexual activity. And you know, for a lot of people, this idea of consent is new. They don't know that much about it, and they just thought they could you know, get their partner to basically do it with them whenever they wanted, and that's not really the case. So I would love to talk a little bit about orgasms, Bill. Would that be okay? Sure. <laughs> Go for so, it. So I want to talk about this idea of, so we've, we've, we've separated this sense of what desire is and what arousal is, right? So arousal is the body's response. Desire is the mind's emotional kind of mindset, if you will. And so I want to move from desire and arousal to stimulation and orgasm. And with a willing and present mindset, Noticing and accepting physical and sexual arousal, the engorgement 
allows sensory nerves to register stimulation as pleasurable. Now, not everybody registers pleasure in the same way. Some people register it as just a low-level, wow, that was lovely. Some people go way up a mountain, you know, like Kilimanjaro, or, you know, they're going up K2, and they come down really fast. And some people kind of go up and down really, really fast. The key is that whatever their pleasure place is, there's got to be a sense from the partner or themselves that that's just who they are, that we all differ. And that was the beauty of, and the genius of Kinsey, right? He, you know, first he started studying gall wasps, <laughs> and then he started studying human beings, and he realized that we're all really different. He started with wasps and sex? He d not wasps like you're thinking, but the actual insect. The bee-like Yeah, he was an ent entomologist. So... Remember, we need some stamina, we need some um, engagement, we need a mindset, but what I want you to remember is that all of us can really differentiate between desire, arousal, stimulation, and orgasm. I need a drink, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to go, and so do you. <laughs> I need to go, too. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you all so very much for being with us on this hour. And Dr. Jane Fleischman, our show's resident sexologist, sex edu educator, Dr. Jane Fleischman. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. And police still don't know how many shooters were involved or have a motive. Councilwoman Tabitha Taylor. This is traumatic. It is catastrophic. And this comes as a shooter who's suspected of killing five people this weekend in Philly is expected in court. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney weighed in on the attack. Person walking down the city street with an AR-style rifle and shooting randomly at people while wearing a bulletproof vest with, with multiple magazines is a disgraceful but all-too-common situation in America. In Texas, a white supremacist who killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso four years ago will finally learn his fate.
In February, he pleaded guilty to 90 federal charges. His attorney, Joe Spencer. He's going to be serving 90 consecutive life sentences, notwithstanding his mental illness that you heard about that not only the government's expert reviewed, that, but that our expert came up with. The state trial is next, and El Paso District Attorney Bill Hicks says he will be seeking the death penalty. We are prepared to proceed with prosecution on the case. Chris Fox for CBS News, Austin. Brutal body cam footage is now under review at the L.A. County Sheriff's Department for use of force. Get down on the ground. You? Get on the ground. Stop. I don't give Stop. It shows a deputy threatening the woman after slamming her to the ground for recording her husband's rough arrest. CBS's Elaine Quijano. The deputy's knee can be seen on the woman's neck. I can't breathe. The deputy then douses the woman with what appears to be pepper spray and then places her in handcuffs. This was all over an alleged stolen cake. Both deputies are now on desk duty. The Secret Service is investigating how cocaine got into the West Wing of the White House. CBS's Stephen Portnoy is in Washington. A law enforcement source tells CBS News the powder was found in a storage cubby regularly used to hold cell phones. The discovery led to an evacuation for a time before the preliminary positive test for cocaine. Sources say the Secret Service will lead a full review of the matter. The U.S. citizenship test is being updated for the first time in 15 years, and it's causing concern for immigrants and advocates who worry the changes will hurt people who don't speak English well or at all. Former President Trump's administration made it longer and harder back in 2020, but President Biden changed it back when he took office. The new version is expected late next year. Day three of Wimbledon got off to a messy start after protesters threw orange glitter on the grass court in the middle of a men's singles match. We please. The crowd's booze on ESPN. That match was pot. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. And Z says scrolling your phone with your index finger finger is boomer behavior. That's according to a new poll by the maker of the game Candy Crush. They found that 80% of Gen Zers use their thumbs. Same for 65%. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. More than 50 people became new citizens yesterday during a ceremony at Northampton Courthouse. The court clerk led the oath of allegiance and people from all over the world were given their new citizen naturalization certificates. 52 people from Jamaica, Nigeria, Brazil, Mexico, and Cambodia can now officially say they're U.S. citizens. Lori Millman from Center for New Americans. It is the fulfillment of a longtime dream goal, which they worked very hard for. This ceremony was one of two held in Massachusetts. 
Thorns Marketplace in Northampton is planning on holding a training session on what to do in an active shooter situation. Marketing manager and co-owner Jody Dole tells the Gazette they feel they run a greater risk than the average business, and she felt it was their responsibility to take preventative measures. Thorns staff and business owners will be instructed by Protective Advanced Safety Services based in Agawam. The training will take place on a Sunday this fall and will consist of classroom training and an active shooter drill. The harassment order issued against actor Ezra Miller was lifted Friday at Greenfield District Court, a day early from when it was set to expire. Last year, a mother of a minor accused Miller of acting inappropriately around her child. Miller's attorney said in a statement that Miller was unable to defend themselves at the hearing a year ago due to mental health struggles and had they testified, the original order may have never been issued. No criminal charges against Miller were ever filed. Your 22 News forecast, hot and humid today with a high of 92. Tonight, clear skies. We'll see a low in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and humid once again. There's a chance of a pop-up shower in the afternoon, otherwise dry, with high temps in the low 90s. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, Bill, Governor Healy, um, she announced the launch of the Massachusetts Community Climate Bank. This is it's a really interesting initiative. It's the nation's first green bank that's dedicated to affordable housing. It's, uh, it, as I said, it's not been done before. It's seeded with $50 million in state funds from the Department of Environmental Protection, and it's designed to... Uh, grease investment, uh, stimulate investment in the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from the building sector. And uh, I know that I want to talk to Senator uh, Paul Mark um, from Western Massachusetts, who's been filing bills to create a green bank for 10 years, and I'm anxious to talk to him about it. But we actually have a green bank that's a reality, and, and I think it's just so interesting. This bank will allow Massachusetts to take advantage of $27 billion in federal climate dollars that are expected to be released this summer. I think it's really important. Um, it's an actual I, bank? You can walk in the door, say, hi, I want a loan? As far as I understand, it's an actual bank and with the brick-and-mortar uh, buildings that you can go into. But the, the more important thing is that it's, it's somewhere at the intersection of affordable housing and, um, and climate is this green bank. I think it's really important. We've talked a lot about affordable housing and the need for affordable housing. Um, what do you think about this initiative? Well, I, I think that anything that goes towards alleviating the housing crisis in Massachusetts and across many parts of the country is crucially important. Housing, people who don't have housing, is the the essence of combating uh, poverty uh, in, the, in the country. So I would applaud all those efforts to make housing available and being able to access millions of dollars in federal funds to be able to loan money, presumably at an affordable rate, to uh, first-time, uh, presumably, home homeowners, and to do so in a way that is consistent with uh, net zero energy uh, use, I, I think it's uh, it's rather brilliant. It's a win-win-win. 
Dan. Yeah. Well, I, I think of Cape Cod when I hear conversations like this because if you know climate change is going to be hitting us in the next 10, 20 years, it's already hitting us. I think about all the homeowners who've been spending their entire lives, um, you know, spending money on their homes and they live near the water. Um, and then I think of the tourism industry and how many people it employs in Cape Cod. So I think of all those areas um, will be devastated by this. So I'm glad that the state is beginning to make investments to see if they can reduce and mitigate the, the consequences of climate change. I, I don't know enough about it to be able to say whether my sort of imagined um, process is in fact the process, but what I en envision is builders who are, uh, you know, that's their, that's their job. They want to create housing that's, uh, that they could profit from. But if they have this pool of resources at affordable rates, then they could access this money by promoting net zero housing. That is, they come up with an application and they want their application to be more enticing to the Green Bank than the next contractor's application. So they really think they innovate I think it's just a brilliant way to stimulate net zero, as Bill said, construction at the same time provide the prospect of affordable housing. Do you have some sense of why it's been 10 years in the Massachusetts legislature? We've talked often on the show about how legislation often actually usually does not pass the first time it's introduced, often goes to another legislative session, sometimes a third. But 10 years for a bill that would seem to have bipartisan support and wide support among uh, elected officials. Uh, I, I don't understand quite why it's been 10 years for this to come to fruition. Well, I think part of it is what you just said, but I, I, I don't want to name names, but I think the initials are Charlie Baker. Oh, come Baker. on, let's name names. It's Charlie fine. Baker. I, I think that people knew that, legislators knew that he, he felt that uh, uh, public resources should not be used for what otherwise is considered to be private stuff. I have a question for you. Is this just for housing or is it for climate projects that would mitigate climate change on in people's areas? I think this is a first step towards getting funding uh, into the hands of community and local organizations and residents and climate friendly contractors for projects that could solve, ameliorate. Ameliorate the, the consequences. So it isn't just for housing projects related. You stumped it's, me now. Okay. Well. Yeah, we really have to talk to somebody who knows more than <coughs> I do. I'm just, uh, uh, I think it's going to work like, you know, programs like um, uh, Mass Save, you know, about Mass Save, yeah. you can get the electric company to come in right. and the, the sponsorship and uh, on the part of the state to get them to come in and do an assessment of how green your house is and how you can improve uh, your uh, lessen your carbon footprint. Um, I think this is the kind of thing that Mass Save does. Well, I, 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 again, I go back to applauding Governor Healy for following through on what was a campaign promise to move Massachusetts towards green energy in a meaningful way and to address the housing crisis in the Commonwealth. I mean, this is no, no small matter that we do not have affordable housing that is even close to the numbers of units and the amount of affordable housing that we need. I do take a look at what's happening at housing costs in Northampton, and the increase is really extraordinary. I mean, house prices are 
beyond what you might have considered possible uh, two or three or four or five years ago. And that just prices just. It prices people out of the market. And uh, the lack of affordable housing is a crisis here. And, and I think uh, we have to redefine what affordable housing. We, we, we used to just think we were talking about people who are living in poverty or very low wage earners. But you and I uh, have friends in common whose uh, ki- adult kids um, just moved back to Northampton. And every house they were interested in, there was a, a bidding war. And they ended up, I mean, houses are going for 850000 It used to go for 400000 um, here in this city. The same is happening in the Hilltowns. And we've had uh, persons from agencies that work to create affordable housing uh, on the show. And we'll continue to do that, to, to follow up with them and on this topic. Because I can't, well, I can't imagine, but I, I, if we do not address this issue, we are going to have dire consequences. It's not just a matter of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have more affordable housing? Without affordable housing, we undermine our economic viability and we really cause distress, uh, not only for individuals, but for everyone. Because if people can't live here, the entire region is going to suffer and they can't live here if they can't afford housing. That's so true. What, what we see is the people who, I'm, re- I'm so concerned about everyone involved, but younger people cannot afford, they haven't had the opportunity to build their estate, to build their bounty so that they can afford uh, more expensive housing. Um, and they can't get jobs in this region because there uh, just isn't enough demand because we have a shrinking population for that very reason. Schools, are in crisis because they're under-enrolled, because young people aren't moving to the region. Um, I know in th- where I live, all the Hilltowns are experiencing this phenomenon. We need to be able to get housing possibilities for people so that before they achieve comfort, like all of us, started out in debt, started out with very little, and if you build your bounty over time if you're lucky. Um, yeah, if you're lucky, because most people live paycheck to paycheck. There's not a big chunk of money sitting somewhere that they eventually will be able to use for uh, for a significant down payment on a house. Most people need need assistance in getting to that place. Uh, it's, it is a luxury to have money for a significant or a 10% down payment on a house. And what Keith Fairley says uh, of Wayfinders, he, he points out that study after study after study said that if people are provided the opportunity to get starter homes, walk into good housing situations. It provides them the opportunity to build a bounty where they can move up in turn up quote in quotes. uh, Well, move to a place where they can afford a house to buy a house and and, and have a chance of, uh, of buying a house that will obviously, uh, obviously, but will as a practical matter, increase in value over time. Most people's most valuable asset is their house. Well, here's a question for you, right? How do you build more homes, which we all agree is needed, and do it in such a way where you don't devastate the environment that you say is so important to mitigate climate change? Uh, that's exactly the right question in terms of where we started this conversation. And the, So the Green Bank should encourage proposals um, because it's more affordable than a customary bank loan. 
the kinds of proposal you're talking about where somebody has really thought out um, exactly that. I think that's a good question to take a break on. Uh, we are talking about the Green Bank, um, the Massachusetts Community Climate Bank, the nation's first green bank that Governor Maura Healey announced the launch of. We're going to come back right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true. But as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. The Branford Marsalis Quartet plays a kaleidoscopic range of jazz and popular classics. They're on their way to UMass, a theatrical concert-style show that chronicles the journey shared by Paul and Artie. The Simon and Garfunkel story is coming to UMass. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Another proposal that I am extremely um, interested in, to say the least, is a proposal before the legislature um, to compensate wrongful conviction victims and to uh, access that compensation sooner under a uh, bill that is before the Massachusetts legislature. Bill, um, who knows more than you about how imperfect our justice system is, notwithstanding our desires to make it otherwise. And we have story after story nationally and here in Massachusetts of people who were convicted wrongfully um, and lost sometimes a couple years, sometimes decades of their lives under a wrongful conviction. There is a move afoot in the legislature that appears to be uh, gaining momentum to increase the amount of compensation. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I'd like to know. I'd like to know more. What is the proposal in terms of uh, w how much money would be available to someone who has been wrongfully convicted and wrongfully incarcerated for uh, sometimes very long 
periods of time. Uh, and I'd like to know what 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 that means. I mean, does someone have to go to court? Do you have to have to file a request for uh, compensation from the Commonwealth? Is there a, a fund that's available? Uh, what does it mean? Well, what it means is the first thing that they're talking about is how much money, when the person has been proven to be wrongfully convicted, how much money they should have in on their person delivered to them at the time they step out of a jail or prison. How much money should they be given? And one proposal is only $15,000. Another uh, is for more, and that the discussion is still happening. So it's, uh, it's up. there is no answer yet um, to your question. The person who's really bringing it to the fore is uh, Senator Jalen, J-E-H-L-E-N. She is Patricia Jalen of Somerville and Representative Christopher Worrell of Boston, along with Jeffrey Roy of Franklin. And they're trying to figure out exactly what that amount of money should be um, and whether it should differ depending on how much time you spent in jail after a wrongful conviction. There's also a question of whether or not people should be compensated for the cost of legal representation to sort of unpack the legal proceedings that result in a discharge. Um, I don't know what the value is. Um, I, I have... Uh, fortunately, I only had I had one person who um, sat in jail for a murder that he didn't commit. Actually, an innocent um, person. Uh, he was from Athol. It was a long time ago. While Michael Ryan was our district attorney, and Michael Ryan admitted that it was the wrong person because we figured out who the right person was for that crime. Um, it was horrific. The amount of time that these people spend in jail, looking at the walls, and nobody will listen. It's, it's really a nightmare. Have, have you had such a person, Bill? Absolutely innocent person, wrongfully arrested, wrongfully accused. I think that the crucial piece of this um, is for people to consider what they would think would be a fair amount of money to be paid if they were taken off the street one day and put in a maximum security prison improperly, wrongfully. You did nothing wrong. And I wonder how much you think would be fair to pay you for going through that for a day. How much money would it be worth? And let's just put into this equation that during that day, you never know if you're going to get out. And so what would, what would you take for that? Um, uh, uh, maybe you just want 50 bucks. No, I don't think so. How about 500? How about 1,000? Okay, so let's say you, that happens for a week. And while you're there, let's say you get beaten up. Let's say you get thrown into solitary confinement for no good reason. Let's say you're cut off from your family and your friends. Let's say that you have nothing to eat that you can eat for a while. Let's say you're terrified the whole time. Let's just add that to the equation. So for that day, how much money would you like to be compensated? And let's say it is only a week. How much is the psychic damage? How long is that going to last? It's going to last the rest of your life. How much is it going to cost your children in their psychic damage, your so, so let's spouse, say, your and, mother? And let's say that goes on for more than a week. Let's say it goes on for a month. Now how much money would you like for that month? 
to be fair, we're not trying to make you rich. We'd just like to give you a fair amount of money for all that's been done to you to damage you. How much? The bottom line is you cannot be made whole because that damage will never go away. Well, but the bottom line is what's the bottom line? And when Massachusetts wrongly convicts someone, what will we do to make it right? What will be the restitution that the state pays the person for wrongfully throwing them behind the razor wire for all that time. It's a great place to leave it. Uh, a, a better place to leave it is, please, write to your senators, your Massachusetts representatives, and um, tell them that you support this bill. Find out more about it. Find out what you can do to help, because um, our justice system is our justice system. It reflects who we are. It belongs to us. And a failure like the type that Bill just described, the psychic damage, all the damage, you lose your job, sometimes lose your house, lose your family, it's, uh, it deserves a substantial amount of compensation. Please support the bill. Yeah, I would note that there is, just to be clear, there is a law in Massachusetts about erroneous felony convictions and claims and who is eligible to make them. The question is, how does someone actually have access to that law? How is someone going to be compensated, and does that law really work for right. people? And should it be revised? If we're going to be back right after this, we're going to be talking dance, ballet. We'll be right back. Somebody else, someone who hurt you, but I'm not above making up for the love you've been denying you could ever feel. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Jess Tyler. More than 50 people became new citizens yesterday during a ceremony at Northampton Courthouse. The court clerk led the oath of allegiance and people from all over the world were given their new citizen naturalization certificates. 52 people from Jamaica, Nigeria, Brazil, Mexico, and Cambodia can now officially say they're U.S. citizens. Lori Millman from Center for New Americans. It is the fulfillment of a long-time dream goal, which they've worked very hard for. This ceremony was one of two held in Massachusetts. Thorns Marketplace in Northampton is planning on holding a training session on what to do in an active shooter situation. Marketing manager and co-owner Jody Dole tells the Gazette they feel they run a greater risk than the average business, and she felt it was their responsibility to take preventative measures. Thorne's staff and business owners will be instructed by Protective Advanced Safety Services based in Agawam. The training will take place on a Sunday this fall and will consist of classroom training and an active shooter drill. The harassment order issued against actor Ezra Miller was lifted Friday at Greenfield District Court, a day early from when it was set to expire. Last year, a mother of a minor accused Miller of acting inappropriately around her child. Miller's attorney said in a statement that Miller was unable to defend themselves at the hearing a year ago due to mental health struggles, and had they testified, the original order may have never been issued. No criminal charges against Miller were ever filed. Your 22 News forecast, hot and humid today with a high of 92. Tonight, clear skies. We'll see a low in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and humid once again. There's a chance of a pop-up shower in the afternoon, otherwise dry, with high temps in the low 90s. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. 
At Ford Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Holiday travelers save some money at the gas pump this year. On July 4th, the national average price of regular was around $3.53 a gallon. That's a few cents a gallon lower than the week before, and a lot lower than last year when gas was over $4 a gallon. Gas prices may head back up soon, however. Saudi Arabia and Russia have both announced they plan to cut oil production in August in an effort to increase the world price of oil. Oil prices have declined in recent weeks over concerns there could be a global recession. A heat wave combined with smoke from Canadian wildfires reduced air quality in the eastern half of the country this week. Meanwhile, a new consumer affairs study found that the West Coast has the best and the worst air quality. It's best in the Pacific Northwest and worst in Southern California. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back on Talk the Talk, and there is something that's very special going on at Smith. Um, <clears throat> that is, it involves ballet. And with us to talk about it is Oksana Kazanova, right? Did I say okay? Right. Kind of like Casanova, but different. And Irina Vakromev, is that it? You say Thank it. Thank you. Vakromeva. We're never going to get it. Vakromeva. But um, thank you both for joining us today. This, you are both founders of the Cosmolo Cosmopolitan Ballet Theater. Um, you have both um, been with the Bolshoi Ballet Academy and the Moscow Ballet Company, uh, an international ballet judge, you, Oksana, have been very impressive resumes that you have here. And so you're bringing this to Smith College this summer. Tell us what's going on, Irina, if you would, at Smith College this summer. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, inviting us. We are very excited to be here and talk to you. So uh, this is very important and very unique program at Smith College. So first of all, we all love uh, <laughs> falling in love with Smith College in uh, New England. So we, are, we bring all our colleagues from all over the world who um, uh, graduate from Vaganova Academy. So this is very special for American and international students. We have uh, American students, Chinese, Japanese students coming here to, uh, to take classes with all Just of us. Just to participate in this program. Just participate in this program. So, and uh, teachers coming from Netherlands, from U.S., from France, from Italy, Russia, just to teach this program. And thanks to Smith, everybody yeah, loves this campus. So it's really amazing. And I think uh, ballet can bring peace in our life. 
I would hope that that would be true. Something's got to bring peace in our lifetime. Oksana, why are people coming from over the world to participate in this ballet program? Uh, it's a very unique program because it's um, all teachers, uh, they use a Baganova method. It's very unique method, uh, a very clear and beautiful uh, method in ballet. It's very important. You know, Arena uh, has a great, great idea about it. Only here, students uh, can have a um, progress, you know, in the ballet if uh, they will uh, study in this program. Are they in different levels of accomplishment? Or are some of them more advanced than others? Uh, yes, sir. It's different levels. Uh, it's um, uh, So uh, the teachers, you know, uh, they can... Uh, work with every student, like personal. And uh, we learn uh, variations from a whole famous uh, ballet. It's a very unique program. It's very, very uh, famous uh, uh, Cosmopolitan Ballet Theater. Yeah. I love working here, you know, I love it. You love working at <laughs> yeah. Smith in Smith, Northampton? Yeah. Why, what is it about it? I love, uh, work, uh, I love work with Irina. Yeah, they both, uh, I wish this was TV so people could see the broad smiles on each of your faces as you look at each other. What is it about working with Irina uh, that you love? I love everything, you know, uh, from the, <laughs> yeah, it's a, this is program um, very comfortable for teachers because students uh, would like to learn ballet. You know, it's like they are very serious in ballet. Yeah, ballet, it's my life. <laughs> I would like to share my, uh, you know, with students, my experience. Your your passion is palpable. I, I I feel it. But Arena, what do you mean that ballet could bring world peace? What what do you what makes you say that? <laughs> Work supposed to be peace. I don't know. I just uh, I think love, peace, kindness is the base of our life. So in, in especially this in this program, uh, students they are working very very hard, like five to six hours a day, and in the weekends we are going to see a museum, uh, we visit Boston, we visit New York, so it's like a therapy for everybody. So listening to the music, dance, express yourself, going to the museum to see amazing fine art. I think this is the 21st century. We have to uh, think how to continue our peaceful life and to be kind. Could you tell us what was the impetus for this program? I take it this is, oh, I'm not sure, is this the first year? And what caused it? Why? Who got together and said, let's have this uh, program for accomplished ballet dancers at Smith College in Northampton in 2023? What happened? How did it come about? Well, <laughs> uh, it was a 30 years in, uh, uh, anniversary at the Vaganova Academy. We all came to St. Petersburg, Russia five years ago. And uh, we all came from all over the world. And uh, I had this idea so to bring all of us together to teach American. Uh, before, I already fell in love with America. And thank God, uh, my daughter... Um, and myself were here in the U.S. And where were you living and working and dancing? Uh, Moscow, Moscow Ballet, Moscow Festival Ballet, Houston Ballet, and uh, before. 
And then when you're retired, you need to make the decision who you are now after being a dancer. Be, so, and and the, the life of a dancer as a dancer gets you to what, mid-30s? How old can you be and still professional? Thirty-nine. Was thirty nine was the last, last uh, period in, in for you in for me. Okay, and then the question because you because it's the toll on a dancer's body is profound. Exactly. So ballet dancer's life is very short. It's twenty years in Russia, and uh, I believe this is much shorter in the U.S. So we have to keep ourselves very healthy. We have to think what we eat, what but you this, do. But this program is for people from nine to twenty three. I read. Is that true? Yes, sir. And when you say Vaganova, I think is how you pronounce the academy. This is a, the teachers come from the Juilliard School, which we are quite familiar with here, and uh, from the Vaganova Academy, right? That's where the yes, teachers sir. are coming from. And these are incredibly prestigious um, organizations. So I want to turn back to you, uh, Oksana uh, Kozanova. I'm so sorry that I keep. I had it before we went on the air, and I keep losing it, so I feel like an ethnist uh, idiot every time I mispronounce your word, but um, your names. But what do you think that people who come here expect to have a sort of just slight advance in their accomplishment, or can they really make a difference in how they approach ballet? A significant difference. I think uh, this is the best summer program for American students. Uh, I have experienced work uh, with uh, all levels students, not just only ballet. I, I have students, um, I work in Mississippi, and I have students uh, um, who just would like to take ballet, but uh, their body not ready for ballet, you know? And uh, this program, it's good uh, help for their progress because teachers, um, uh, usually, teachers in America um, give a program just for every, uh, everybody, you know. And here, we teach like personal, you know. We concentrated on the person, and uh, we um, uh, can tell for each student, like, uh, you need to do this, you need to do that. You know, it's like it's very good for students for, uh, for the future. Their future is the demands on the body of ballet more than the demands on the body for any other form of dance. Ballet's basic, you know, ballet's basic for uh, another form of dance, contemporary, modern, hip hop, and uh, you know, it's like, but not everyone understands it. And we here, I hope, students happy. I saw uh, yesterday in the class, I saw the happy eyes, you know, it's like they are, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, one more very important here, Cosmopolitan Ballet Theater summer program, organic food. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, it's uh, meals uh, three times a day. It's very important for uh, dancers. It's organic food. It's good for stomach. It's good for health, good for body. It's very important. Arena, I wanted to ask you about the way most people regard ballet. A lot of people don't think that it's accessible to the common person. I know, I, I remember that France was the sort of initiating uh, society as far as ballet's development, and a lot of the language of ballet comes from French. But then the Russians 
took it and advanced ballet and tried to make it more accessible to the everyday woman and man. Um, is that still your aspiration to try to make it more available to people, more have people know more about it and understand it better? Of course. I think everybody can dance. And we, like Oksana said, we, we're working individually. So this is uh, the, the program. We like to, it's a small classes. We like to work with everybody. And we are welcome everybody who wants to dance. So classical ballet, classical is a perfection. So we all can try to be perfect. Well, what, what do you think is wrong with most people's understanding, their conception of what ballet is all about? A lot of people think it's hoity-toity and fancy-pantsy and, and not for them. Uh, what can you say to disabuse us of that A lot impression? of work. A lot of work. We all, uh, not everybody, are uh, ready to work. It's much easier to maybe excel to uh, other type of dancing, but ballet is work very, very hard. And when you, you're you in it, uh, you cannot stop yourself to be a perfectionist. I think this is the beauty of it. Does ballet generally tell a story? Ballet only telling a story, maybe much more than we can say with words. Uh, what why in the weekends we'd like uh, students to be, to be uh, more educated uh, because ballet based on the literature they need to read. Uh, ballet based on a, um, music, so they need to uh, take music lesson. They need to understand music. Ballet based on a fine art, everybody needs to uh, to understand fine art. And last week we had a week of uh, fine art classes, specially created for dancers. So is it fair? Now, to I just want to make sure I understand that. As opposed to performing art, fine arts like. Paintings and sculpture and that sort of thing. Painting and sculpture. They took painting classes because they understood the body. They, uh, they need to understand about the color. Uh, because some of them become, some of our students bec may become light designer, uh, costume designer, choreographer. If you're a choreographer, you have to create the performance. You have to know all about art. Is it fair to think of ballet as a musical that is told where instead of words there is dance in other words does dance take the place in the storytelling do the dance does the movement itself tell the story i i think so uh, it, it's uh <laughs> you everybody can discover uh you can you can say much more with a jester with the music, without music, much more than you can say with words. You can say your body can, can e express when they're happy or unhappy. I think this is an amazing form of art. And people come to your program from where? From all over U.S., uh, truly from all over U.S. Uh, we have students from China, from uh, Japan, so we're trying to make this program bigger because uh, we'd like to share everything we know. Uh, my personal teacher, um, Madame Kakurina, she was in the last class of Vaganova, believe me or not. So in the beauty of Vaganova method, she blended uh, Italian and French. She took everything the best from Italian and French style and created the most, uh, I will say, 
a reasonable and healthy method. So people who, who, who are doing ballet, they need, to, uh, they need to think about healthy life. Like Oksana said, thanks to Smith, even food is healthy. Environment is healthy. Emotion is healthy. So we all, uh, I'm very, very um, careful to choose who will teach my summer intensive. How so, many teachers are there? 12 teachers. And how many students altogether? 45. And how long does the program go on for? It's at three sessions. We've already done two sessions, uh, uh, two-week session. Uh, we are working in a three-week session, and the next one will be two-week session with, uh, parent, uh, with uh, teachers who are coming from France. And I take it that there is an expense. I mean, this is, you have amazing teachers, and it's at Smith College with three organic meals a day. Um, I, there's an expense to all this, I take it. Can you tell us about that? It is expensive. Okay. Um, Life is expensive. <laughs> what can we say? Life is expensive. And, uh, and do most of the students, are they sponsored by schools or by institutions, by dance companies? Unfortunately who, who, not. Really? Yeah. They pay, parents, have to pay for parents it? Parents pay, pay for it. I know this is very expensive, but it's worth it. It's a life, lifetime experience. And the program is either two weeks or three weeks? Two weeks, three weeks, and another two weeks. Okay. We are going to take a break. Uh, we are speaking with, this is the easier last name for me, Oksana Kozanova. Yes, sir. And Irina, say your name, your last name slowly. Bakromiva. Bakromiva. Is that right? Perfect. Thank but you, But when sir. I read it, there's no A at the end. There you go. That's why I was confused. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about ballet. This is keeping me on my toes. Ha, ha, ha. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1415-1400-1240 WHMP. <laughs> Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you or someone you care about struggling with mental health or substance use? The Behavioral Health Helpline is here for you. Call 833-773-2445 and we'll work with you to find the help you need. Free, open 24-7 and available in over 200 languages. No insurance needed. 833-773-2445. A service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts operated by the Massachusetts Behavioral Health Partnership. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking about this this summer intensive ballet program at Smith College and about ballet in general. So let me ask you, Oksana uh, Kozanova, how did you first get involved or interested in ballet? And tell us a little bit about um, how you started to learn ballet old little child and uh, it's my mom said uh, of course I don't remember right right now and she said uh, you said I would like to be a ballerina and uh, I became a ballerina you know it's like it's uh, it was long way a hard way but yeah it was my dream child dream. when did you first start actually dancing uh, couldn't I have been at two years old right right um, I was seven years old I went to the dance school uh, it was like character dances. And then uh, I decided to go to professional ballet school, Vaganova school. That's in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, I was 10 years old. Yeah, and I graduated the school. How long did you, uh, before you graduated there? Uh, eight and a half years. So you were Hard living away from your family for eight and a half years learning ballet yes, sir. at the academy in St. Petersburg. Yes, sir. Yeah. It was a uh, work from 8.30 in the morning until 9 p.m., whole day, ballet, and uh, math, uh, literature, language classes, everything. And then uh, it's Durham, and we were, like, uh, students were there, spent the night, you know, and then whole life, ballet, ballet. <laughs> and the quality of the instruction you received there at Vaganova Ballet Academy, how does that compare to what is happening at Smith this during this next three-week segment? Um, You're looking at Irina. Irina, could yeah, you take yeah. that question? We're trying to bring the same structure uh, in the Vaganova. So with character, with... Uh, we didn't have contemporary, but we do have contemporary. And uh, we in, uh, I invited my uh, one of my best students graduated from Juilliard now, and she's a teacher and choreographer. So she's coming to teach uh, next session. Um, the how, same. Structure. How much has contemporary ballet changed from when you were younger and professionally dancing to now? Is it substantially different? I think it is. Life is changing, so art is changing. We have to follow. How? How with, has it changed? The is it more expressive? Is, it, is there Maybe. more freedom 
maybe more freedom. Thank you for this word, yeah. Uh, with the philosophy, with the expression, expression, with the, an idea in dance. So a ballet dancer could be more uh, sort of interpretive now than they used to be? I hope so. You hope so. <laughs> so it's not as structured? Ballet is not as structured, as, as prescribed, the dances are not, as they used to be? No, even better, because now I think dancers must have much more technique to dance even with more expression and uh, more technical and uh, faster. I'd like to know a couple things. I'd like to know where you both are working now when you're not at Smith. I'd also like you to then tell us a bit, if you would, about how hard it is to learn ballet, because I see dancers on their toes, and I could never do that in this lifetime. I couldn't do it in the next lifetime. I mean, I just it strikes me as impossible. So I'd like to know what are the skills that are necessary to bring to learn ballet. But first, tell us what you're doing the rest of the year, and then answer that question, if you would, please. I'm still Irena. asking this question uh, myself because I can't understand why I started to dance. So I was four years old, and I, I realized if I don't dance, I cannot breathe. So and I'm asking every day, students who are coming to take our classes, it's too hard. We're dancing six hours and four hours, almost four hours on point, and everybody doing on, this. On point meaning on your toes. On, on toes, on, <laughs> dancing on point shoes. Uh, I don't know, the beauty maybe. Maybe the beauty, maybe... Uh, an idea to be perfect? Men and women? Men and women. But men has much more job than us. They're holding us. They're lifting us. So they're turning us. So it's a huge amount of work. We're thankful for our partners are for most, working with us. Are there more women, girls? More women. In, in ballet? Uh, uh, um, it is. Because ballet needs support. Everybody based on an um, economical situation, unfortunately. But what do you mean by that? I mean, uh, people want to Dancers aren't paid enough? Is that what you're not, saying? Not, not paid enough, like other profession. Mm. I, I would be interested to know where, where you're working when you're not at Smith, both of you. Um, and I'd like to ask a question, uh, answer in any way you like, whether or not having had your training in Russia causes any pushback, any opposition to you or questions raised to you about ballet, which is an expression of freedom, given that there's widespread belief in this country that Russia has attacked Ukraine. So you, your response to that, if you would, please. So uh, my first words will be, uh, I pray for Ukraine every morning. My, uh, my morning starts from uh, the news, what's happening. So and, um, I hope Bali can bring peace and can bring all countries together because this is universal. So maybe this can, uh, can bring students, teachers, people, and uh, talk peace and against the war. I, boy, we could talk about that forever, but I have one more ballet-related question to ask Oksana, and that is, when I think of a ballet choreographer, I think 
That's the word. Choreographer tells you what to do. You have to figure out how to do it. You learn how to do it. You follow that. How much interaction is there in developing choreography between a choreographer and the dancers themselves? Can dancers input on what the choreographer wants them to do? You know, not every dancer could be choreographer because it's different uh, profession. Um, but do they collaborate, the dancer and the choreographer? Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, yeah, yes, collaborate. Um, it's a very interesting question, you know. <laughs> this question. Um, do you? Maybe that's the right question. Yeah. Choreographer says, I want you to express Yeah, this. I would like, you know, it's, uh, it's only, it's uh, I came to my head when I listened to music, you know. And uh, I would like to ex explain, it's like, it's about the, Everything about peace and beautiful dance. It's, it's yeah. Arena, will people be able to see the fruits of this program? That is, will there be a performance at the end, or can people come and watch? Parents coming to watch the progression of two and three weeks. And uh, we're also making kind of uh, an addition um Several years ago, I created here in, in uh, Amherst my own creation, Bluebird. Blue Blue Bird. Bird, uh, bird. Blue Bird story based on a, a very, very famous um, written story by Maurice Metterling. So and this is a Christmas story about love, about kind, kindness, and about peace. <laughs> And where is the where is the performance? The performance was uh, performed six years ago here several several times, and now um, uh, I'm back and forth from here to Washington D.C. and it was performed at the Kennedy Center. Ooh, uh, that is very nice. So, will there be a performance that people can plan it, to buy tickets for? It, it will be probably. We're working on it, and we, we will keep our fingers crossed. Let us know, and we'll be happy to tell people Thank about you. it. You're both delightful to speak with. I wish you the best of luck in the remaining portion of that uh, incredible project that you're working on where we have world-class dancers coming here to get even better being taught by world-class teachers. Thank you so much for joining us on Talk to Talk. And remember, we're all going to try to walk the walk. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413 the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. WHMP 